if you have a Bible, to join me in Psalm chapter 30. Almost all of us in this room, you have memories and moments in your life that you can look back on, and no matter how long ago they were, you can recall those moments and those details with crystal clarity. And some of those are good moments, and some of those are difficult moments. And one of those difficult memories for me that I can always recall uh, happened when I was in the eighth grade. My brother was a freshman in college at the time, and he came home for the weekend. I was playing in a basketball game, and he was going to watch and spend the week and the weekend with our family. And uh, my parents were already at the school where we were playing, and so my brother and I uh, get in the car to go to the game, and he's taking me there. It's somewhere between 5 and 5.30, and the, the sun has already set, and it's getting dark, and we're driving along on the road, and he slows down to make the left-hand turn that he needs to make onto the next road, and he begins to make that turn, and I can still remember very vividly seeing this flash of light, and then we felt the impact immediately after that. And in that moment, my life and my brother's life were never going to be the same. In the oncoming lane, there was a motorcycle driving down the road with a teenager and his friend on the back with him, and they were coming down the road without their headlight on, and so my brother didn't see them in the darkness when he turned. And I won't give you all of the details of what went on, but I will tell you that the driver of the motorcycle lost his life, and his friend was severely injured as he was thrown from the vehicle. But I can still, in my mind, go back and walk through all of the moments that happened in that event, that happened right after it, and the things that took place. I can even think back to and remember four to six months after it happened, going to see a counselor because I wasn't sleeping very well at night, and the different trials and things that my family had to walk through. I can remember the things that people said to us in the aftermath of all of those things, and, and I can still think back on them and with crystal clear pictures to see those events in my mind. You have moments like this, I'm sure, both good and bad. And what can happen for me is that I can begin to look back on that memory particularly. And I can begin to ask a lot of questions. Why did God allow this to happen? Why did it have to be our family that this happened to? Why didn't he do something to stop it? And those aren't wrong questions, but if I'm not careful, what I can do is I can let myself get angry about it. But in reality, what happens most of the time is as I think back on those moments, I'm actually grateful. Because not only can I remember the events that happened, I can remember how in the, in the days, in the weeks, in the months, and even the years after that, God's mercy abounded in my life and in the life of my family. I can remember us in, in the midst of difficulties of those moments, crying out to God for mercy and God responding to our cry for mercy with mercy. I can look back and see how God used those events in my life for His glory and, and my good. And I can stand here today, now 23 years later, and give testimony to the faithfulness of God, to the mercy of God. I can be grateful and thankful to Him for that. And every single one of us, we go through difficult moments in life. And if you are in Christ, you have those moments where you can look back and you can see how in the midst of difficulty, God's mercy abounded to you. And you could stand here and you could give testimony and you could lift your voice in thanksgiving to God for how he has worked and how he has moved and how he has been merciful in your life. And that's what Psalm 30 is about today. Psalm 30 is, the, is a psalm of thanksgiving. 
It's a psalm where David is looking back on some events that have happened in his life and he is giving thanks to God and he's lifting his voice and his pen about the mercy of God and how God intervened and acted on his behalf. And so I would invite you, if you are able to please stand with me as we read God's word together out of Psalm 30. This is what David writes. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restore me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, I ask that by your Spirit I would be faithful to your words to the things that you have inspired David to write, God. May the things that I say that are not of your spirit, may they fall to the floor very quickly and be forgotten. And may the things that your spirit prompts me to say, may they sink deep into our hearts and into our souls. May the gospel be lifted up. May the glory of Christ be seen and exalted above all things in our time together. For your glory and our great joy. It's for the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This psalm, it's an interesting one because of the order in which David goes about uh, addressing his subject. Uh, Most of the time, if you were to tell a story, you begin at the beginning and then you work your way to the conclusion. Well, David doesn't do that in this psalm. David begins at the end. He begins by talking or extolling God by looking back at what has gone on. And he opens up with that word. He says, I will extol you, O Lord. Extol is not a word that we use very often, but it means to praise enthusiastically. David is thinking back to what God has done and remembering what God has done, and it does not lead him to a simple, well, thank you, I appreciate that. No, instead, he's overwhelmed with gratitude. He needs to give expression to the good things that God has done for him. He has found God to be faithful And he is excited about his faithfulness. And so he opens up by saying, I want to enthusiastically praise the Lord for this. And then he gives us the reasons why he is extolling God. Reason number one that we see in verse one is that God did not let his foes rejoice over him. Those who stood opposed to David and therefore those who stood opposed to God did not have the final say in David's life. If you know much about David's life, he was constantly surrounded by enemies. Early in his life, he is opposed by Saul. During his reign as king, foreign nations are bombarding him all the time. Even his own son, Absalom, stands opposed to him for a time. 
Over and over again, people are standing opposed to David, but, the, but those who stood opposed to David ended up falling by the wayside. All of them did. David was placed on the throne by God, and nothing that anyone did could thwart God's plan in David's life. The enemies of God, they will never have the final say. That is a truth that we need to remind ourselves of over and over again. That once God has established his plan, once he has set it into motion, nothing is going to stop it from coming to completion. Or maybe the better way to say that is, God has established a plan. And God has set it into motion, and nothing is going to stop God's plan from coming to completion. This is the truth that the scriptures teach us, but for us it can be hard to see a lot of times. If you look around the world, you see leaders rising to power who have no love for God or no care for His Word. In fact, they openly oppose that. In our own society, we see people who are abandoning biblical truth and the biblical gospel at a rapid rate. Even in your own life, it can feel like everything is working against you and the whirlwind is going and raging around you and it doesn't seem like it's ever going to stop and it doesn't look like God knows what He's doing And in these moments, as we look around, as we see these things, as we feel these things in our hearts, we need to remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel. That through his death and his resurrection, Christ has defeated all those who stood opposed to him. That God, through Christ's death, has defeated death and sin, and everything now just waits to be subdued under Christ's feet. Remind yourself that there is one right now who sits on the proverbial throne of David, that he, Christ, is the ruling and reigning king of the universe, and his enemies, they will never triumph over him. David is extolling God because God does not allow his enemies to triumph over him. Reason number two that David gives is because God answered his prayer. You see it there in verse two. God, David says, I cried to you for help. And you healed me. This gives us a little bit of a glimpse into what's going on in David's life. That at some point, we don't know exactly what, but David was facing peril in his life. That word healed, it can mean either healed from physical sickness or it can mean to be restored or set up again. And so David, something was going on in David's life where he was in peril and he calls out to God and God answers God hears his prayer and he answers. David is extolling God because the infinite God of the universe, when he cried out to him, the infinite God of the universe heard his prayer and he came near to David. The third reason that David gives us for extolling God is because God then rescued him from impending death. That's what we see in verse 3. He says, God has brought up my soul from Sheol. That word Sheol is just another way of saying from the grave. The events that happened in David's life, they actually brought him near, not to proverbial death, but actual physical death. And God rescued him. I love the image of that word brought up. It's the, it's the same word that would be used to describe someone who is drawing up water from a well. And oftentimes you have to dig very deep to get down into the ground in order to get that water out of the well. David tells us he is at the bottom of this pit And even in the deepest well and in the darkest time, God is still able to rescue. God is still able to draw you up and restore you. 
And David, he is thinking back over his life and he is seeing how God has worked and God has acted and God has been merciful and God has answered in all the things that he has done and he is praising God for what God has done. And that's very key in those first three verses. Take note of how much David takes credit for himself, none, and gives credit to God. All of it. Look at the things that God does in these verses. God is the focus of these first three verses. In verse 1, the Lord has drawn him up, and the Lord has kept his enemies from rejoicing. In verse 2, the Lord hears, and the Lord heals. In verse 3, the Lord brings up from Sheol. The Lord restores to life. It's God who moves. It is God who acts. It is God who hears. It is God who restores. It is God who is merciful. Follower of Christ, let me encourage you. Be very quick to praise God for what He has done in your life. When you see growth in your life and conformity into Christ's likeness, thank God that He is the one working that in you. When He hears your prayers and answers them, give voice to praise of God for acting and for moving and for being merciful. When you're in the midst of the whirlwind and you don't see God working, understand that He is in control and sovereign over all of those things and He's working all things and nothing is going to stop His plan from coming to completion. It is God who moves. It is God who acts. It is God who works over and over again. In every aspect of our lives, God is the one who is working and He is the one who is moving. He is the one who is lavishing on us extravagant grace. Our role is is to cry out for help and to depend on Him. And then to give voice to our enjoyment in God's work in our life. And this is what David is doing. He extols God for what he has done. And then it's interesting that he doesn't stop there. In verse 4, he calls on other people to do the same thing. In verses 1 through 3, he's giving personal expression. And in verse 4, he calls for congregational response to what God has done. He says the saints or the people of God are to sing praises to the Lord and to give thanks to His name. And then he gives you the reason why in verse 5. For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Here's what David is saying. How God has handled him and the things that He has sent into David's life and how He has responded to David He's answered his prayer. He's been merciful to him. Those things are true of the very character and nature of God. And if they are true of the very character and nature of God, the things that David has experienced that he's extolling God for, God not letting his enemies claim victory over him, God hearing his prayer and responding, God rescuing him from the grave, all of those things, those are available to every person who places their faith in Christ. They're available to you and to me and to the midst of our trial and to the midst of our difficulty. Those things are available to us because they're true of the very character and nature of God. And David is saying, congregation of people, people of God, give voice, give thanksgiving because this is true of who God is. But I will tell you, there's something in verse 5 that's a bit unsettling. David says there, God's anger towards us is for a moment. His anger is toward us. And that can be hard for us to process because when we think of anger, it's never a very good thing. Most of the time, our anger is because our emotions are out of control and we need an outlet for them. So we use that outlet by lashing out at those around us. Usually with loud, raised voices and threats of some kind. That, That this is the way that our anger gives expression to itself, but this is not the way of God. 
You see, because God is perfect and holy, his anger is also perfect and holy. And in the lives of believers, what I want to argue with you this morning is that his anger is used in our lives to bring us into greater depth of relationship with him. That his anger that is for a moment leads us to his favor for a lifetime. What I want to contend with you this morning is that when David talks about God's anger, what he's talking about is God's discipline that, that he sent into the life of David, which was hardship, which was difficulty, which was pain. That God sent these things intentionally into the life of David to break David of his sin. That David began in some way to chase after something other than God, to give his heart to something other than God. He began to distort the blessing of God in his life, and God disciplines David for it. He sent his anger for a moment to draw David back into his favor for a lifetime. Let me show you what I mean in verses 6 through 10. He, he ends, or he begins where he, in the, at the end, and then in the middle here, we get the details of the story. We get a glimpse into what has gone on in David's life. We don't get a full account of everything, but we see enough to know that David in some way distorts the blessing of God, and so God brings his discipline upon him. In verse 6, we learn that at some point, everything's going really well for David in his life. David looks around at his prosperity and his blessing, and he says to himself, this is great. Everything is so well established. I have all that I need. And then it records for us that I shall never be moved. David begins to see the prosperity around him, see the blessing of God, and instead of relying on God and seeing those things as God's gifts, he begins to place his security and his trust in his prosperity. This is the way commentator William Van Gemmeren notes about verse 6. He points out that the security David feels is based on his prosperity and not on God. And that is the way of the wicked, not the way of the righteous. To place our trust and our prosperity in the things of God and the gifts of God is the way of the wicked. This is what Psalm 10 records for us. Listen to verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 10. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. For all his foes, for, as for all of his foes, he puffs at them. And this is what he does. This is what the wicked does. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. The wicked looks at the things he has and he says, it's all going to stay here. It's all going to remain. I'm not even going to meet adversity. It's all going to last and it should last. And this is what David has done. He's taken the prosperity that God has blessed him with. He's assessed it and he has said, I'm going to be good. Look at all that I have. There's no way this is going to go away. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think this is what we do so very often. I know it's what I do so very often. That I look at the things that God has blessed me with. We look at the things God has blessed us with and we think they will never go away. And we think they should never go away. That it should always, we should always be this comfortable and this prosperous. And the danger is that we can even acknowledge that that prosperity is a gift from God. The psalm never gives us any indication that David thinks he's accumulated all this on his own. 
In fact, it kind of gives the indication that he recognizes that this is a blessing from God, but sin, it's very subtle and it's very clever. And it begins to twist our hearts and to make us think and that we can acknowledge the gifts of God while thinking they are sufficient for us instead of God himself. And this is what David does. And in response to David's love of prosperity, God acts. God does something. Verse 7 tells us that it is by God's favor that David's mountain stood strong. David recognizes all the blessings, they are from God, and then just as quickly, God can take them away. It says, God hid his face and David was dismayed. When David writes that God hid his face, I believe this describes God's anger for a moment. He's referencing in verse 5 that God acts to remove his favor from David for a time so that David will be dismayed and it will break him of the idolatry that is in his heart. And while we don't know exactly what this discipline was that God sent, David has already given us glimpses. Whatever God sent into his life caused him to be in such peril that his life was actually on the line. That's what he tells us in verses 2 and 3, that his life was restored from the very brink of death. It could have been a sickness that God sent. It could have been enemies threatening him. Whatever it was, God sent it. God sent it into David's life. God hid his face from David. God acted by turning away his favor. And when you hear that, that can jar you a little bit. That doesn't sound like the God we normally think of. That doesn't sound very loving or very merciful of God. But it actually is. It is, as the author Sheldon Van Auken, I think, so aptly said, it's a severe mercy. God's mercy most of the time doesn't look like what we think it does. I think if we were to say what we think of when we think of mercy, it's the absence of hardship or difficulty in our life. It's kind of God leaving us alone to do our thing and then forgiving us when we mess up every now and again. But that is not the way of mercy. In fact, if you read Romans 1, mercy is the exact opposite of that. In Romans 1.18, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul says the wrath of God which is the opposite of his mercy. The wrath of God is being revealed. And then he goes on to describe what that's going to look like. And in verse 24, he says, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. And in verse 26, it says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then in verse 27, he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Here's what Paul is saying. The wrath of God, the wrath of God looks like this. It is God's choice not to intervene in your life as you chase after sin. It's God's choice to leave you alone and let you follow after your sin. This means that when God turns away from David and removes his favor from him and sends calamity and hardship and pain into David's life, God is being merciful to David. The discipline of God in our life is evidence of his mercy toward us. Leaving David alone in his sin 
to trust in his prosperity, to be secure in his prosperity without God acting on him, that would have been unmerciful of God. But God acts. He disciplines David. The anger of God towards David, or to say it another way, God's discipline in David's life for a moment draws him into deeper life and deeper favor with God for a lifetime. This is why weeping tarries for the night, but joy comes with the morning. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to actually see it here in the text because this is what we see in verse 8. God removes his favor. David is in distress. And what does he do in verse 8? He's at the brink of death. God has hidden his face and David cries out to God. David's no longer relying and counting on his prosperity. He's no longer looking to the pleasures of this world, but he has turned his heart back to God. And guess what? That was exactly the thing that David needed to do. That was what was best for David. In verses 8 through 10, we read of his cry to God. He's got nowhere else to go, and so he turns to God. He turns away from his sin, and he turns back to God. This is the point of God's discipline in David's life. This is why his anger comes. He wants to draw us back to him. He wants to draw us deeper into him. He wants to conform us more into the likeness of Christ. The great sculptor Michelangelo was once asked how he could take a huge piece of Italian marble and create what, was, what is the statue David. Michelangelo replied, that was easy. I just chiseled away everything that didn't look like David. And this is what God is doing in our life as he sends discipline to us. As these ang- this anger for a moment that comes, his goal is to draw us into deeper dependence and communion with him. His goal is growth in us in humility and desire for him above all things. And it works in the life of David. David cries out to God. He pleads for mercy. He asks God, help me. I have nowhere else to go but to you, God. I love verse 10. It's, so, it's such a great picture of David's dependence on him. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Everything else that he was depending on to help him, it's gone. And so he only has God left, which is sufficient for David. David has nowhere else to go. Through the severe mercy of God, God has drawn David into deeper communion, into deeper relationship. He's turned back to God. He's cried out for mercy. And when David cries out for mercy, you know what God does? He answers him with mercy. This is what we see as David ends these last two verses here, verses 11 and 12. David ends kind of where he began. He began by extolling God for his mercy, and David recounts for us again in verses 11 and 12 what God has done in his life. And he uses two different images to tell the story. In the first one, he pictures himself as a mourner. He pictures himself as someone who is going to a funeral. Funerals are typically not jovial occasions, They're in a time when you shout and dance and tell lots of jokes. They are somber and they are melancholy. They're a time of mourning. And David says, this is what I was like. That God has turned his face from me. God has removed his favor and and it caused me to be in mourning. But now, God responds with mercy and everything has changed for David. Now mourning has been completely turned around and it has become dancing. 
David wasn't a Baptist, so it's okay. Right? This kind of change in David, this points back to the extolling, right? Extolling is to praise enthusiastically. God has rescued David. He's shown him mercy. And David is so excited about the mercy of God that his body physically cannot contain the excitement and the praise that he wants to give to God. The second image he gives us is one of clothing. He pictures himself wearing sackcloth, a very rough and coarse fabric that was harsh to the skin. It's not everyday kind of clothes. It was worn to communicate sorrow and repentance and contrition. David has recognized that he was placing his faith in his prosperity, his trust in those things that he had, and God has turned his face, he has hidden his face, and David has been dismayed, and now he is repenting of his sin. He's calling out for mercy, and God has answered with mercy. And now David is pictured as wearing new clothes. Not clothes of sorrow and contrition, but clothes of gladness. God heard David's cry for mercy and God answered with mercy. And this should not be surprising to us that God does this because this is the way of God. That's what he says again, remember in verse 4. This is what God does over and over again. You can go back through the Bible. When people cry for mercy, God answers with mercy. He does in the life of David here. Go back and read the book of Judges sometime and you will see this very interesting pattern people of Israel, they fall into sin. They're captured by a foreign nation. They cry out to God for mercy, and God gives them mercy. And then they fall into a cycle of sin, and they're captured by a foreign nation, and they cry out again for mercy, and God gives them mercy. And then they fall into a cycle of sin, and they're captured by a foreign nation, and they cry out for mercy, and God gives them mercy. And I could keep saying that about 15 more times. This is what happens over and over again. When people cry out for mercy, think of the story of Jonah, the Ninevites, a wicked and depraved people who have no love for God. Jonah shows up, says like five words, and they repent of their sin. They they cry out for mercy. And what does God do? He gives them mercy. Throughout the Bible, go through it. People who genuinely cry out to God for mercy, they get mercy. It happens over and over and over again. Every time in the Bible it happens, except for once. On a hill outside the streets of Jerusalem called Golgotha, Jesus hung on a cross. And as the sins of the world were placed on him, he hung there and he cried out for mercy, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Father did not answer Christ's call for mercy so that he would always answer our call for mercy. That Christ absorbed the full wrath of God against sin so that you and I, when we place our faith in him, will never have to endure it. So when God brings discipline into our life, when his anger comes on us, it will only be for a moment. But his favor will be for an eternity because of what Christ has done. And that truth of God hearing our cry for mercy and answering with the finished work of Christ, it leads to the same conclusion that God's mercy in David's life did. In verse 12, he says, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. A phrase that my glory, it means with my whole being. 
He wants all of himself to praise God. He wants to give glory to God for what he has done. David recognizes that it is God who provides. It is God who is sufficient. It is God who loves. And sometimes that love involves a severe mercy. And he wants his life to give thanks to God that every part of him now, through the discipline of God, has been transformed. He is praising God for sending this difficulty into his life, for answering and responding with mercy. And so now he wants his life to be one of praise and thanksgiving to God. I think David would agree with the words that were written by William Featherston many years after this when he wrote this. I'll love him in life and I'll love him in death and praise him as long as he lendeth me breath and say when death do lays cold on my brow. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. Follower of Christ, let this be the cry of your heart as well. To look back through your life on the mercy of God and give voice in praise to him. To strive to look to the finished work of Christ and remember that God answers our call for mercy because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Let us think on those things and let us rehearse those truths to one another. There's a reason that we talk about the gospel week in and week out over and over again because it is what we have to have to endure the things that God brings, the things that he uses. It is what he uses to conform us more into the likeness of Christ. And so, yes, we want to rehearse it again and again. We want to encourage one another with it. And so in just a moment, we're going to stand and we are going to sing yet again. We're going to continue to worship God and we are going to lift our voice in praise to what God has done. That Christ has died for us. He has redeemed us and saved us. And that he is right now conforming us into the likeness of Christ. Today, the Holy Spirit is working in your life to conform you more to Christ. Even when you fail... That is God working in your life. And you may not see it, but it is happening. And sometimes that work is a severe mercy. But when we call out to God, he will always answer with mercy. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Christ and what he has done. His finished work. That when he cried out for mercy, you were silent. So that you would never be in our lives so that you would always answer when we call to you for mercy. Oh God, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude. Let that truth be what breaks the idolatry in my heart. Let your grace be sufficient. And God, when you sin difficulty and when you sin trial, use it to conform us more into the likeness of Christ. Use it to break us of the things that we cling to in this world so that we would exalt Jesus more because there is nothing that is going to be better for us than our enjoyment of Christ. May we praise and exalt your name now. It's in and for the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Will you stand and lift your voices with me this morning?